Hello and welcome, Deer Camp family. Are you guys ready for an adventure? Welcome to the Deer Camp podcast, where we dive deep into the world of hunting. Enjoy your two hosts, Noah Pallas and Peyton Mender, alongside various expert guests that share their favorite hunting stories, give expert tips, and everything in between. Whether you're a seasoned hunter or a curious listener, it's time to pull up a chair and let the adventure begin. This is the Deer Camp Podcast. Hello, February 23rd, coming at you live, episode number four of the Deer Camp Podcast. We have 20, 221 days until October 1st. What are your thoughts on that? First thing that came to mind was this is episode number four. That's exciting. We're rocking and rolling, baby. Persistence is going to pay off. You damn bet you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Did you say 221 days till season? 221 days. Uh, it kind of, I mean, that's kind of a daunting number, but at the same time, uh, the amount of things I would like to get done between now and then, that number is a little bit reassuring because it gives me some time to, you know, it's like whenever you're going to take a test and it's like if the test is tomorrow or if it's in two weeks from now, it's like, oh, I still got time to study. You know, it's like, yes, that's kind of how I feel about it a little bit. Like, there's, I want to shoot my bow a lot more this summer. Uh, I want to get that dialed in. Um, I think we could all, I think we could all spend more time, you know, shooting the target. So that's going to be a, that's going to be a priority of mine as long, uh, as well as just setting stands, hanging cameras, obsessing, you know? Yeah. You know what I'm excited Hoping everything for. goes to plan. Hey Siri, how many days until uh-huh. July 15th? 143 days I'll be hanging my fucking cameras. That's what I'm excited for. That's not as bad of a number right there. No, not at all. Oh, hey, you got you got some big news this week. BFD in the cut. He's still living, man. BFD is still alive, and he's still holding both sides, which shocks me, which I've always read, you know, the earlier they drop off, not necessarily they're unhealthy, but the harsher winter they went through, their bodies are not doing as good. So the fact that he's still holding both sides like February, like a week ago, no, not even that, four days ago, that's pretty damn good. I'm excited about that because he did have a limp on him, you know, at the end of the season. Um, and we have 100% a coyote issue out there. Um, so luckily, so far, so good. I, I need to ask Andy if he got a video of that to see if he still got that limp, but. I was pumped to get that picture, to say the least. Yeah, for sure. And so you're go back. You're saying that typically a deer is going to hold their their antlers a little bit longer into the winter if they uh, like if they had better nutrition or like a better food source going into that summer. Deer. That's I, that's what I've always read. I've always read if there's a really harsh winter, like a lot of super cold, 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 cold days, they will drop much, much sooner. Um, in you know january february or if they were hurt you know like last year you know when trident had that little trident side um i got a picture of him mm-hmm. december it was like end of december december 20th let's say and he already dropped off that one side because that was the side that he damaged earlier in the year um i don't know when he dropped off his second side but i've always read the longer they hold the healthier they are slash the the winter was not as bad Right. 
Yeah, I'm excited about that a little bit because I think that um, I think we'll have majority of our deer that, that I was seeing on our farm be back next year. And I mean, here we are, it's February, what, 23rd, and it's going to be 70 degrees on Tuesday. So, I mean, on average, I mean, I, I, time will tell if this is going to be a good, good or a bad thing, but I think right now in the short term, I think we're 10 degrees above average for February, which I think is a record, if I'm not mistaken, here in Illinois uh, this year. So, I mean, I, I don't know. They're they're not having to go through those 30 below crazy stuff like they did last year because that cold front around Christmas time, man, that was that was a definition of harsh temperatures. So the fact that yeah, it's I been was sunny in 75 here in February. I was just going to say, I guarantee that is the warmer it is this time of year, the better it is for the deer. I mean, in terms of their overall health, cause yeah, I mean like last Christmas, you know, negative 30 something degrees, real feel that's brutal. I bet if I was a deer, I'd much rather be hanging out in fucking 70 degree weather in February than, you know, five degree weather. 100%. And I would bet they would think the same yeah. way. Have you, uh, absolutely. Have you seen, uh, you don't have any cameras out. Have you noticed any of your bucks still holding or? Uh, not necessarily. I did see a, I saw a group of, uh, bucks maybe about a week ago. Uh, and this, they're, they're in a cut, cut ag field, you know, before dark, but, um, I was driving by and maybe, there's probably about six of them and I would say maybe two of the six were holding and I would say another three of them had one side and one of them had nothing. So, I mean, the overall percentage of the, the, the group that I saw anyways, um, they had, they, they had antlers. So I don't have any cameras on my, my uncle still has some up on, on a piece that I hunt and uh, I checked into his cameras and uh, the Tacticam app last week and was going through everything that he's got. And, you know, we, up until about maybe four days ago, we were getting some pretty consistent pictures of bucks and most of them had both sides. But since then, the, the pictures I've gotten in the last 48 hours, uh, I've not seen a buck. So maybe something, maybe something switched. And I still shook them off. So you go find them. Yeah. Uh, I was asking, a Andy was saying, um, Andy Robertson, our last guest, people that don't know, um, he was saying that the first week in March um, is when his favorite time to go shed hunting is. You plan on, obviously, I will not have the luxury of going because I am down in Florida um, for work, obviously. Uh, do you plan on going out pretty soon, or what's your plan there? Yeah, so I'm definitely going to go on Sunday. Um I'll be going out Sunday and I actually went last this Monday. So about five days ago. So that would have been, I believe the 19th of February. So I went out then and I spent about three hours back, back in this, uh, little funnel through this ag field. And I was actually head back to the truck. I was on the, I was on the phone and I was on heading back to the truck and I walk, walking over area and sure shit. I find a nice, you know, nice uh, half of an eight pointer. So he was a nice thick uh, four point, um, good gnarling at the base, had good color on him, real thick mass. I was super, super excited about it. But the crazy thing is, is that I found him like close to the truck. So yeah. I, I walked up the right side of the Creek on my way out through the field, 
I get to the end point, you know, and it takes me two hours to walk. I don't know, 800 yards. I get to the end and I'm turning around, heading back. So I'm going to switch over to the left side of the creek, walk all the way back. I'm thinking that, you know, was I was going to strike out today because I usually don't have that much luck finding shed antlers, to be honest with you. And sure shit, right, when I get close to the truck, I look and there lays a really nice, real nice uh, antler. So I was like, damn, I was pretty excited. Oh, shit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In terms of luck, I mean – you know, with me and you playing, uh, you know, baseball in college, obviously this time of year, we're fucking full-blown baseball mode. You know, we don't have the free time to go home and go shed hunting. So, you know, I have gone shed hunting in my life and I've had absolutely no luck. Um, but like I said, since I've really got into, into hunting to where it's like I'm doing all the little things correctly – um, you know, that was probably in college is when I started taking, you know, everything to the next level. Um, I really haven't had, you know, time to go shed hunting. Um, you know, I college baseball, obviously, as soon as I graduate, you know, ba- uh, college straight down to Florida, um, I need to start planning some vacations, you know, a week or, you know, a weekend to go home beginning of March and walk the fields. But, you know, last year I went in April and I found a shed from, the year before, um, that was all just, you know, destroyed by squirrels and whatnot. And it actually turned out being grandpa's antler, which is pretty cool because I shot him. Um, but that's, that is the only antler I have ever found out looking for sheds is that one. And it was like 80% eaten by squirrels. So I'm not the guy to ask for for, for tips in terms of antlers. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've, I've found some in the past whenever I was younger, but that was always a byproduct of mushroom hunting in the spring. And like you said, it looks like a toothpick by the time I get to it, that the squirrels have done had their way with it. And I feel like a lot of times it's attached to a skeleton too, which sucks. So this time, you know, a nice, healthy, fresh shed laying on the ground, something I was actually out looking for and trying to, to target. And this might be this might be a stupid uh, thing to say for people that have been shed hunting and have had experience with it, but I've really just started to pay attention. You know, like, like you said, back in baseball, we were gone a lot. We didn't have a ton, ton of time to be observing the property that we're going to be hunt throughout the entire hunting year. It was usually kind of leading up to the hunting season during the hunting season. And then that was it. So we never really got to see how it operated during those off years. But now that I have spent more time at home in the summertime, I've started to notice where bucks are summering at. Where do I see them when we're driving on the gator around the block, you know, in July, Mm -hmm. June. So the places that I'm seeing them are not the places that I have my stands now. So obviously there's that transitional period from summer, summer habitat range to, to whenever they make that switch, you know, in the fall, whenever they kind of shake it up on us, but just observing that and just really focusing on, Hey, there's this little Island out in the middle of this field that I would, you know, had never would have hunted really in the past because, you know, it's like, Oh, big timber. It's where you think it's all going to be at. So, um, at least that's what I thought. So the fact that I was able to go out there to those areas and kind of pinpoint them, those little islands, isolated areas, and really, really walk those, I had some success. So it kind of, reassured my suspicion so to speak so i definitely learned something this year Mm -hmm. yeah that 
that's a good point about you know the summertime because one of my you know my favorite cameras i put up out at my place um is on a old fence row it's got a whole bunch of trees on it but it goes way out probably you know 300 yards out into a field um during the season you know i can see that uh, that field or that fence row uh from one of my favorite stands and do we have deer come from that area Yes, we do. Is it often? No, we don't. So I think like there's, I, I would almost, I mean, obviously, you know, deer transition their summer bedding. There's, de- there's a big difference between summer bedding and winter bedding. You know, summer bedding, they got that tall grass that they love to hang out in because that camera, you know, come, you know, early fall when everything started dying off, that camera started dying off too, because there's not all that cover. I think they slowly transition to a safer place to bed. Um, but yeah, no, I, that would be nice to be able to be home during the summer and go out scouting. I did a little bit of scouting this past year. Um, but I just don't have the luxury to go out, you know, three nights a week, you know, just when I'm home. Um, but yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's where it's so, so helpful to have, have cameras, you know, let them be the eyes for you for, you know, to the best of your ability. Because, um, I definitely, there's definitely an improvement of understanding the movement of mature bucks on your property during the summer months Mm -hmm. to be able to kind of see what's going on, see how they're acting. Um, because you know, they, they, they might all be grouped up in one area and, you know, you have one kind of way off by himself or, you know, you might be 300 yards off of, uh, 300 yards on off the field in a, you know, a main drive road or something like that. Stop, you pull up, you you know, you see your guy that you're after or one that really piques your interest and he's right on that field edge versus the other three or four, the younger ones, they might be 20, 30, 40 yards away from that tree line. They're hanging out in the sun, eating, doing their thing. And the boy you're after, he's kind of lurking, you know, in the shade behind them. And as soon as you stop and pull up them binoculars, he's boom, gone. So you kind of get an understanding of like, well, this guy isn't standing there high and proud, chest puffed out, showing up, you know, giving me picture-esque opportunities at him. He's seeing me. It's something out of his ordinary and he is gone. So it's like, well, if that becomes a current and I know that he's in this area, then um, not that we're not always cautious, but just really, really waiting to get into that area until the time is perfect. And then that's where seeing your camera, you seeing the bucks in the summertime, placing cameras accordingly and uh, all that. Cause the last thing you want to do is bump a super skittish buck out of there. Yeah. You know, what I think is bullshit. And everyone says that deer pay attention to the summer because late season deer return to that pattern. You know, they'll, they'll, travel off, you know, four, five, six, you know, miles during the rut. Um, and they like to return back to their home range for late season. So they say, pay attention to their summer patterns, you know, whatnot. I agree with that, but I really don't agree with that because I think their summer patterns are so much more different in terms of how they, they may be on or around your property, but how they are walking through your property is completely different because like I said, all the tall grasses are gone. All the like the thick, you know, shrubbery stuff that has, you know, a whole bunch of leaves and stuff on it is gone. So like they may be on your property, but the, like I said, the way they, they, they travel from point A to point B in the summer 
is 100% different, in my opinion, not an expert, than how they travel it, you know, in January 1st from point A to point B because they don't have the summer cover. Right, for sure. So, yeah, I bet there's, I mean, I'm sure there's more factors that go into that than we're probably aware of. I mean, cover is probably definitely a big, big one of them. Um, so, I mean, they're going to have, I mean, whenever I'm thinking summertime, I'm thinking of, you know, the ag, you know, there's, they're going to be spending a lot of time out in the fields. And then once that stuff gets cut out, so A, ag is gone, B, cover is gone. So where is their new AB? Is that going to be whatever diversity you have on your property mixed in with white oaks because they're dropping acorns? So they're kind of going to make that switch from, you know, heavy ag uh, between, you know, so if you have ag here and then you have your does bedding around the edge of the ag and then behind that you have the bucks kind of isolated on slopes to where they could, you know, based off of wind and things of that nature, um, I definitely see that being being a huge factor in what kind of causes them to seasonally change their behaviors, and that, that I mean that's what we're all here trying to figure out. I don't <laughs> I don't think we any of us will ever quite figure it out. I mean, there's a lot of good research out there um, that people have done on deer, and there's a lot of really smart minds in the conservation world working on that type of stuff. But I would love to know what it is that just what switch flips in the deer's head and is like, I'm doing this today because I did it last year on this day. <laughs> yeah. But speaking of research, uh, deer, I think it's deer association um, on Instagram. They put up a video of a tagged, um, you know, collared buck. Um, and the whole point of the research um, was bedding areas. And this deer had about a four mile home range. Um, from his longest point of travel on one end to the other was four miles. Um, but, and they show every blue dot on this uh, graph of where he like bedded down for more than two hours. And everyone says like, Oh, that's where this buck is bedded. That's where this buck is bedded. But this research, it was really interesting to me because if you looked at the amount of blue dots, there were so many. Um, throughout this whole entire four miles. So he was betting all over the place. Now there was definitely more concentrated areas where you had a whole bunch of blue dots close to each other. Um, but there was not like one set, like this is 100% his favorite betting area because he was all over the place. Um, now that may change, you know, per property, you know, some properties may not have a, a shit ton of good betting. So, you know, they may be more concentrated on, you know, one, two, three, four spots. Uh, but for this study, there, he was better all over the place. It was really interesting because I always thought, you know, that's his betting. That's where he's going to be coming from. But in reality, um, they have like 15, 20 different spots they like to bet at. Right. I was, as you're saying, I was thinking, so let, let's put a little scenario out there for you. So let's say this summer you put your cameras up and you're getting, you know, 180 inch buck on your farm that, you know, he's just got it all. He's got mass. He's got some really nice dark chocolate antlers. He's got double white patch. He's just a unicorn. He's cool looking deer and wildlife, your local wildlife biologist comes up to you and says, Hey, I'm going to collar this buck. But if I collar this buck, you, it, it's taken off the table. You can no longer hunt this buck. You could not shoot him, but I will share all of 
the information and data that I get of how this buck moves on your farm? Would you collar him to learn or would you rather roll the dice and uh, think that he's going to, he's going to show up and you're going to have a shot at him? Can the neighbors shoot him? Yes. Get fucked. <laughs> You're going to miss not, out on that opportunity. That's a lot of stuff to learn. Uh, it's a lot of stuff to learn, but I can learn enough from the trail cameras. I'm telling him to get fucked. I don't want the collar on him. If you said no, if the neighbors could not shoot him, 100%, but if the neighbors could shoot him, that's too big of a risk for that big of a deer. Like if you're talking like a 140, completely different, you know, scenario there. I, I think I would, I mean, obviously I would 100% be like, yeah, let's do it. That'd be cool as shit. But a 180 double patch neighbors could shoot him. Fuck you. And you also got to keep in mind the neighbors that you have. They're not your typical neighbors. No, they're not. <laughs> they're, no, they're they're good. They're I good mean, neighbors. a lot of your neighbors would pass on a 180, which is which is crazy. That but is, I mean, hopefully, well, I mean, we'll we'll get to that point <laughs> someday. I will not be passing on a 180. I can guarantee you that. So yeah, definitely, definitely not. Definitely not. Maybe if you had ten of them up on the wall, you maybe you let him see if he can get into that world class two hundred area. But yeah, yeah we that would be tough. I mean, we talk about that all the time, dude. I'm going to be depressed someday. You know, I heard Don Higgins, uh, and I love, you know, listening to his podcast. Uh, you know, he does a questionnaire at the end of each podcast, and the guy came on um, and was kind of talking about, you know, how he just doesn't get as excited anymore um, when he's got like a 150, you know, and he, he was reaching out to Don um, saying like, do I just, should I stop hunting or, and Don said the same thing. He's like, I'm the same, you know, you, you increase as you hunt. Uh, the thing that's exciting to you now is not going to be as exciting to you in 20 years. It's just a natural, natural thing humans go through. But dude, I mean, I get beyond excited and my heart is pumping at a freaking like, you know, a 100 inch six pointer coming, I mean, coming at me, am I going to shoot him? No. But do I get extremely like you know, if I were to go to pull that bow back, I mean, when I'm going out there, like, all right, I'm going to shoot a doe and a doe is walking at me. I mean, my heart is pumping out of my freaking chest. So if it ever comes to the point to where I have 150, 160 inch deer walking at me and I don't even like increase my heart rate at all. Cause it's like not as exciting. And I'm going to wait for a 200. I mean, yes, it would be cool to be to that point, but it'd also be extremely depressing at the same time because I enjoy getting excited about the little things, you know? Absolutely. And I mean, that's a great, that's a great segue into our, this next topic here. I would kind of like to cover. I know we've, we've kind of talked about it briefly in the past, but so, I mean, starting from, I think you gain that level of appreciation of what you're talking about and what these guys are talking about for whenever, you know, they see a 140 coming at them in the woods that they don't feel that level of excitement as they did whenever they were, whenever they didn't never shot one before. So, I mean, you and I, me specifically as well, and I'm pretty sure the same goes for you. I started off, if I saw a deer, it was my deer. That's the deer after, after, I was after. I didn't care what it was. If it was a button buck, a spike, a doe, that was my deer. And I think by starting there, 
I was able to have an appreciation for my first buck that I ever killed, which is sitting behind me over here behind the shed antler. I mean, he's a, he's a four pointer. He's a, like a year, year old four pointer. And that was, a, I mean, in my opinion, that was the biggest buck ever whenever I had shot it. And I was one of my most proud bucks that I had ever shot. So I guess where I'm going with this is, do you think that we are hindering like our, like the youth in the, in the industry? Because, you know, whether it be their parents, uh, somebody that they know, somebody that they're connected with has found a great level of success to where they have the big blinds. They have the, you know, the hundreds of acres and the food plots and the bedding and all of that stuff to introduce a somebody that's never, whether it's a kid or somebody that's never hunted before. And you introduce them to that environment and say, hey, we're only shooting four and a half year old deer up and right. does. Do you think that they're going to have the same level of uh, that satisfaction? No, I, I, I mean, this may be controversial, but no, I completely, I don't like that idea of, I mean, I guess it depends. If the kid is extremely interested in hunting, he's going out there, let's say with his dad, he's wanting to help him during the off season. You know, he's doing, he's constantly asking about hunting this and that and this and that. Um, do I, do I still think it's right to, you know, Hey son, we're going to go sit over this food plot. And if a 170 comes out, you're going to shoot him at like seven years old. I don't agree with that. I just, I don't agree with that because maybe that's because we, like you said, we were, I was, you know, completely different. I had, I, you know, I went hunting with my uncle when I was real young, but he was behind the bow. You know, he was behind the gun. I was just sitting there watching, just enjoying it. Um, the way I learned was going out and, you know, it's like me and you've talked about, I set up a ground blind on a trail on a trail thinking that was the way to do it obviously i had you know a couple of does walking at me and i was i've never been so excited in my life i'm like holy cow i'm doing this right and they look at me like what in the flying fuck is this you know person doing sitting on this trail um so i no i don't i don't necessarily agree with that i think it's uh i think you get more appreciation when you do struggle for something it's like going out you know playing golf and hitting a hole in one on your very first shot um, compared to somebody else that has been golfing for you know 45 years and has never hit a hole in one, they finally get it. Obviously, the level of appreciation would be a billion times more for that person that's been golfing for 45 years compared to the person that goes out their very first day and hits a hole in one. I think it goes hand in hand with you know deer hunting. Um, so no, I I don't think that's necessarily the right thing to do to set your kid up or whoever up on a really big deer for their very first deer. I just let them struggle a little bit. I think struggle creates, right. You know, that, that drive to do better. Right. And I mean, it kind of goes back to whenever we had Andy on last week, I remember him saying that whenever he had his kids with them, you know, it's like, Hey, you know, shoot whatever buck like for your first deer, shoot whatever one that gets you excited. And then we'll work our way up from there. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I really like that. I like that mentality a lot because you do have, you know, you do have some of those, um, those bigger farms and stuff, that nature to where, I mean, I, I see the videos every now and then to where like, and it might be, it might be all freaking staged. I don't know, but there's like a little kid there and, you know, out walks a deer that would, I'd be tickled to death to have a walk out in front of me. And it's like a six year old with like a muzzle loader on a gun rest with a big scope over this beautiful food plot and like turns around, looks at her dad's like, we're going to wait, we're going to wait for a bigger one. I think we're going to pass and wait on a bigger one. I'm like, oh, she's just getting robbed of, of all those, uh, 
just getting robbed of like what it is. I think that makes hunting and what makes deer camp, you know, it's, it's so much bigger than the, than the result of a mature buck laying on the ground. Because once you've shot that 140 or you, once you shot that button buck, that spike, the two-year-old, the four-year-old, you know, once you start getting up there and then man, if lucky enough, one day we shoot something that 170 up class, we're sitting there looking at it and like, well, now we, we get our enjoyment from making other people reach their, you know, reach their, uh, deer hunting goals and where they want to be at. So I do agree that being along for that whole process does make it a little bit more meaningful in the end. Oh, for sure. I mean, the amount of times, I mean, we've talked to I me, mean, I've been friends with you for a long time. The amount of deer that I have failed at, um, you know, I can count, I can, you know, four or five that I shot and couldn't find, um, no three or four. I shot and couldn't find, you know, I have the, the, the younger bucks or the smaller bucks that I, you know, shot and killed and got super excited about. Um, and you're obviously in the back of your mind, you're like, all right, I want to get a big one now. I want to get a big one now. And I'm 20. I shot Trident when I was 26 years old. Um, and I've told you before, I freaking teared up in the goddamn stand. I was so excited because I've been working for that, you know, for so the amount of times I failed not doing things correctly, you know, getting too excited, making bad shots. I think it, I mean, it made me appreciate it 1 billion times more than if I was an eight year old and I went out hunting with my dad in a box blind and he put me on a 170. Would it ever, it just would not feel the same way. Um, because I failed so many times and finally got it done on a, a really nice deer, I appreciated it a billion times more. 100%. So, moral of the story is, I, I disagree. And we've actually, we've kind of talked about this. How cool, I mean, if I, you know, someday, you know, me and you got some awesome property, how cool would it be to tell our kids, like, this is how I did it. I went out and I failed and failed and failed and failed over again. But every time I failed, I learned, I want you to go out to another property, let's say a permission piece or something. You go out there, you fail over and over again until you go out there by yourself and kill a deer. Um, or I'll come with you, but you're making the decisions. Then you can come hunt our property, my property that I have put a whole bunch of work into. Like, I think that would be cool because I think it would make them appreciate it a lot more and they would be so much more driven. Like, oh, I want to get on dad's property. You know, I'm going to go out to this property and, and get it done compared to, you know, eight year old. Hey, come with me. We're going to go sit in this box blind. We're going to have this big old buck come up. And you're going to shoot him, you know? Right. I mean, the the potential for growth, I think, is so much higher whenever you're reflecting on failures. And whenever I say reflecting on, on failures, like you and I come from a baseball background. I mean, it's a game to where you fail and fail and fail and fail. You know, I mean, you're failing 70% of the time at the plate. And I mean, beyond there out in the field, there's a lot of things that can, that can go wrong. It's a difficult sport to be good at. I think so, I failed I mean, 90% of the time you at the have, plate. But... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if I failed 70% of the time at the plate, I'd probably still be playing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I it wasn't that good, but it's just saying there's, there's so much to learn from failing time and time again, your entire life and sticking it out and saying, okay, you know, I, why did, you know, like going back to the baseball analogy, why did I swing at this pitch in this account, in this count, you know, that was not a smart thing to do. And just 
continuing to build that confidence off reflecting on failure and then coming up with a plan to keep that from happening in the future, practicing it and then executing it again in the future. So like going back to whenever we were younger and we were going out in the woods and we were not finding success and you were putting, you know, a, you know, you'd spent probably what, eight hours of your life putting this box blind up, setting it on a trail, waiting for a deer to come. You know, maybe it came, maybe it didn't, but if it did come, it looks down the trail and it's like, huh, that wasn't here yesterday or this morning and smells the high heaven of stinking people on turn around and leaving. So bam, there's a, you know, it's like, oh, I failed. I'm, I'm upset about it. Or, you know, you just reflect on it and figure out what the problem was and then execute. And I think the more times you do that over and over and over and over and over using your own brain, then the, the opportunity for growth is so much higher. Yeah. And I, I mean, I learned a lot from like my uncles, you know, my uncle Jason, my uncle Dave, you know, going hunting with them. I learned a lot from them, but they never handed me like a deer, you know, like never, you know, they didn't ha and they don't even have the, the, the property set up towards, you know, that given as to some of these, I feel like some of these properties um, that we see on TV, you see these little kids, you know, hunting, I feel like it almost is like, hey, if we go out and hunt this blind four or five times, you're going to have a 145, 150 walk in front of you, you know? I mean, so I'm not, I mean, I, I think it'd be really cool, you know, if your kid's really interested in it, um, I think it'd be cool to, you know, have him come with you. You know, you're you're the one hunting. He's sitting there, you know, if he's paying attention, he's really cares about what's going on, um, you know, teach him along the way. And then, okay, it's your turn, buddy. Where are we going? You know, like based on what I've taught you, where do you want to go? And he may say the stupidest like location known to me, but you just, okay, that sounds good. Let's do it. And, you know, let him make the decision based off what you've taught him instead of, you know, making the decisions for him um, saying, this is where we're going to go. You know, I think that would be, and if, if that happens and he picks a, a really good stand and says, this is where I want to go. And a really big deer walks out, but it was his choice. I don't have a problem with that because he made the decision, you know? Yeah, no, no, I agree with that. I agree with that for sure. Because I mean, you, you can't fully, I mean, you not fully, you, you can't discredit the people that are, that are in the situations to be able to provide these opportunities for young kids because, you know, that's where we want to be at. So, I mean, one day we might be in the hot seat to where you and I find success and continue to grind out um, in our personal careers to get to the point to where we could have, you know, some properties set up solely for hunting. And we introduce a couple pups into the world and one of them's like, Hey man, I, I'm so excited. I want to go hunt. I want to go hunt. We'll go hunt. You take them with you. No one, you know, if I have a hundred and, 40, 140 inch buck run around, you know, it would be, uh, it'd be difficult to play that out in your head to let them succeed, but also fail. I mean, you know what I mean? It would be difficult yeah. whenever you are in the situation of that person to make a, a teaching moment instead of a handout moment. Yeah, no, I completely get like, you want to share, you know, special moments with your kids. I, I'm not, I, I, 100% understand that. I just think there's a better way to go about it than giving your kid, you know, a gun and letting, you know, him for his first deer shoot a 150. If that's his first deer, I don't, I just don't, 
and like I said, maybe it's because we were we were like the way we learn is completely different. And I'm sure there's a ton of kids out mm-hmm. there that their their first deer was a really big deer and they still absolutely love hunting, you know, with all their freaking hearts. Um, but did they work like I don't know. Um I guess it just depends on the situation, but I I think there's just a better way to go about it than letting them shoot a really big buck for their very first year. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely a big, it's definitely a big gray area because it is, uh, we definitely have a lot of bias, um, coming from our backgrounds and I'm, and I'm not saying that my background isn't a background to where I was taught things because I definitely was. Um, but then again, I was just, I was given the, the knowledge and the know-how to, create opportunities for myself in the woods. And then from there on out, you know, it was up to me completely. So, I mean, on whenever I branched out and started really taking the hunting seriously, then I I did learn a lot. I learned a lot from my dad. I learned a lot from my uncle, but as far as having, uh, I feel like my property is like the freaking wild West, man. I mean, it's like crazy. There's, there's stuff going on all over the place. I, I, that will be my lifetime goal is to figure out how deer move on the property by my parents' house. Cause I don't have a damn clue. I mean a little bit, but just that big open hardwoods and it's just like little tiny tree lines spread out through all these fields that I can't hunt. That's just, I don't know. It's, it's difficult. I'm getting off topic here, but not really. <laughs> I mean, that would be a good, I mean, I've, I've obviously been there hunting with you. It is uh it's a lot different than what I'm hunting now. It's a uh, kind of similar to mm-hmm. Russ's. Um, you've been to Russ's. I mean, Russ's mm-hmm. is, I can't, I mean, b- when it was CRP, um, you know, the 80 acre field that is now, you know, beans slash corn, it used to be CRP. Um, and back when it was CRP, I mean, the hunting was a billion times better. Um, and that's, I don't know. I know CH uh, blue, blue tongue hit really bad over there. Uh, but ever since, you know, that I can remember ever since it was turned into corn slash beans, I can't seem to figure the property out. And I think when it was CRP, I don't think there was really any, you know, rhyme or reasons to their movement either. It's just, we were seeing so many deer because they're using that 80 acre CRP field. as a massive bedding area. So we were constantly seeing them. Now they come in, you know, they come and go from, you know, the woods to the field. And, but there's no, like, it's just hard to freaking pattern them because there's so like, thousands and thousands of acres of connected hardwoods all around them that I can't figure it out. But the property that I hunt by my house obviously is more of like a tree line property. Um, and it's a lot easier to pick up on their movements on trail cameras. Like, okay, he's going left to right in the morning, right to left in the afternoon, like little stuff like that. It's a lot easier to pick up on, on a smaller property. Maybe it's the size of the property too. That makes it easier. I don't know. I mean, I just think, hardwoods massive you know acreages of hardwoods is just hard to figure out right especially whenever you're not going in and forcing land improvements if if you can't do that so then you're really just using you know the natural food sources what that time of year and you know what little bit of cover is where some you know maybe some big timber blew down to where some does hang out so you might hunt that during the rut hoping a buck comes by I mean, I've had success out there. Don't get me wrong. And I mean, there are always big deer out there, but, and this is to circle back to our first or 
part, what we were just talking about with the, would you, you know, rather be sitting in a blind with a big buck for your first opportunity, or would you rather start from nothing? And this is like, whenever we were looking at properties this week on online, and um, I had sent you that one, I was like, man, check this out. This is pretty, this is pretty awesome setup. This is, this is what it is. And you're like, yeah, it's cool, but I don't, don't want it. <laughs> I'd rather, I'd rather buy something that's thick, nasty, or wide open. And that is just not an ideal spot for, you know, maybe the location, we know there's deer there, but they're not staying there and uh, just figuring it out on ourselves. I'd rather have a five-year project of getting the habitat right versus buying something that's already set up. Uh, yeah. I, you hear all the, uh, the big time, you know, hunters talk about how, how much they enjoy, um, doing the work to their property for a specific deer and seeing that work pay off. You know, I can't relate to that. Obviously I don't have any ground that I own. I have permission pieces that I can't really do much to at all. Um, but if it ever were that case, I could only, like, I think that would be the greatest satisfaction as a hunter is going into a, not necessarily, like you said, not a piece of sh shit property, but if it's in a good location, you know, there's a lot of deer there, but the property itself is just not good at all for hunting to go into that, kind of put a game plan together, do a whole bunch of work and see that pay off. And you kill a deer, uh, based off of what you did, that would be badass. So badass. That's a goal. That's 100% a goal. I mean, could you imagine, you know, you get the keys to the gate and you're pulling up with, you know, you're pulling up with a, with a skid steer and a tractor it's like, well, here we go. We got the game plan and it's time to get our boots on the ground. And what better feeling would that be? Oh, it'd be awesome. But then again, it would be like, we're kind of starting over in hunting. You know, we would, I, I feel like I would fail, you know, to, like all the things that I think would be really good. Um, now I would do a ton of research beforehand. I know you would too. We're perfectionists. You know, if we're going to do something, we're going to do it right kind of thing. But I still feel like we would fail. Um, many, many times before we kind of like, okay, that didn't work, but this did work kind of thing. Just like we, you know, just like with hunting, just like the basic knowledge of hunting, how many times we failed. I think it'd be the same thing all over again with owning your own property and be able to do whatever the hell you want to it. I bet we'd fail uh, many, many times over again before we started to, to learn from that. But then again, it would make it so much more rewarding when you finally do get a game plan together and you really critique the property and it works out and you're holding big deer and you're shooting big deer. I mean, that's literally like our, our goal right there is to have that opportunity to be able to do that, to fail and then succeed. Right. And it would be, I mean, that's why I'm, I'm really looking forward to, you know, the, the point of this podcast, the deer camp podcast is to gain friendships with like-minded people uh, in the hunting industry or just, you know, weekend warriors, people that we meet, you know, we want to meet, uh, as many different walks of life out there that obsess about whitetail deers the same way we do, whatever that may be. And that's why I'm looking forward to hopefully getting the opportunity to speak to some of these people that do this for a living, the habitat management stuff and, uh, to where they can, cause I'm, I, I mean, I'm sure that they would tell us the same too, that there's no blueprint, like, this is where you do this. This is where you do this. This is where you do this. And I'm sure that there's a learning curve on every property. Every property has its own set of challenges, whether it's, it has no food, it has no bedding, it has no water, has no cover, has no access, uh, the neighbors, whatever it may be, but it would be awesome 
to get the opportunity to pick the minds of those people that do this professionally and that they almost, you know, can formulate some sort of game plan based off of a lot of situations. I would love to get the opportunity to, you know, uh, not necessarily shadow, but just to be in on that conversation to see what the thought process is on how somebody lays out a 20 acre parcel versus a 200 acre parcel and how you find success to hunt it and all those things. So I think that's where this podcast can really shine is to reach out to people like that and really focus on laying plans out of success for, for all different types of properties. Well, we're going to have that uh, opportunity coming up. I mean, Chris Brackett, I know he does a lot of, uh, he does a lot of uh, land management kind of stuff. Um, I see on Instagram. So he's obviously going to be a really good person to, you know, talk to about, you know, how the hell did you learn this stuff? You know, is it just based off experience? Did you, you know, study it? Did you learn from, you know, a mentor? Um, and also, you know, Don Higgins, Don Higgins said um, that he's going to come on and, you know, I, we, we follow Don on uh, Instagram. I mean, he's at a different property. I feel like every weekend he's constantly saying, yeah, I'm going up to Michigan tomorrow. Then the next day I'm going to be up in Ohio uh, to pick his brain. Cause you're right. Every single property is going to be completely different. So there's no, there's no set plans in his head. Like this is what we do for every single property. Maybe in terms of like, we need bedding, we need food, we need water, that sort of thing. But like the, how the actual, actual property is set up based on the land everyone's different. So to, to pick their brains about that and how they kind of go about putting together that strategy um, for that client is going to be really cool to uh, hear for sure. Right. And I'm, I'm curious too, to learn uh, like a, like a turnaround time on that. So say we, you know, we get all the information from somebody that does this for a living and they, we come up, you know, we collaborate, we come up with a game plan on, you know, let's say our property in the future that we, that we own together. And, um, they say, okay, you know, this is what we're going to do. This is how, uh, we're going to find success and hold mature whitetail on this, on this property. And like I said, I'm sure each property is different, but it would be neat to see what that timeline is. Like, are we looking at a four year turnaround, a three year turnaround, five year turnaround on, you know, how how they expect the herd to react uh over time to to become you know that that hot spot property that you want to hunt yeah that's a good i, I don't know the term i mean i feel like it that would depend on the area you're in is there a lot of big deer like does that property have you know trail cam pictures of a bunch of big deer that are using it right now and if that were the case i think the turnaround time would just be less than a year. You know, if you go in there and do a whole bunch of work and those deer call that property home and you go and improve it, I think you would see your results like the very next year as another property that, you know, doesn't have, um, it's just loaded with a bunch of two-year-olds, you know, one and a half year old, two-year-old, two and a half year old, whatever. Um, I think that would obviously, your reward would take longer to get because, you know, you don't have, I think the deer would adjust pretty quickly is what I'm saying. If there's deer on the property, but the success I think would be, you know, more dependent on how many big deer are in that area. Um, because I think if you go and do work, I mean, obviously they're going to be freaked out at first, but they're going to realize pretty quickly, like, wow, I, I really like this, you know, this is nice. You know, that's what, I mean, 
I, I like to, you know, picture deer as kind of human sometimes. Like if someone comes into your house and does a whole bunch of improvements to it, um, at first you're gonna be like, what the hell, you know, but after, you know, a week, two weeks, three weeks, you're gonna be like, God damn, like, this is nice. I, I like this shit. You know, I, I don't think it's any different with deer and it could be, I could be talking out of my ass, but that's just kind of a, a simple way of breaking it down in my head. Right. So you, your thought process on a fully renovated property in a good area is that you're going to more or less uh, cherry pick mature bucks that are already in the area to call that home versus uh, them those bucks just continuing on their same pattern and being able to grow young bucks that are already there. I think that goes. I think that goes hand in hand. I think if you improved a property, I 100% think you would cherry pick bucks. But I also think you would. It would be easier to get that age structure correct um, on a property set up like that because, like you're gonna have like like I said, you're gonna have if you're if you're cherry picking bucks, bucks are gonna go to that property. I think they're gonna get accustomed to it pretty quickly um, because you are doing improvements solely for the deer. And I don't think they're stupid. I think they're going to realize like, damn, this is really nice. I have everything I need right here. And I think that would also go hand in hand with the age structure too, because, because you're doing so many improvements, you're going to cherry pick the bigger bucks, which allow that, you know, three-year-old, um, that's st still a really nice deer to let go another year because you have bigger ones using your property. As in, if you don't have those improvements and that big, you know, 180, isn't really using your property at all. And then you have a 143 year old walking by. That's like the best option you got. You're going to shoot him. I mean, most people would shoot him if they have, if that's their best option, you know? Right. Yeah, I, I agree. I definitely think you're going to pull from, from both pools for sure. For sure. Um, I'm wondering if, if that, that process comes right away. Or um, I'm curious on how many uh, how many of these uh, improvements or these buck holding properties, daylight walking, all this stuff um, is a direct result of the herd population, specifically does that are living on that property. Because I know that the bucks really don't like all that social pressure of multiple deer on the property. Because I mean, I've heard I've heard of people that are like, yeah, you know, back back in the day. We had, you know, a, you can go hunting and you could see, you know, 15, 20 deer a night. You might see 10, you might see 10 does and, and five bucks. And, but those bucks might be a year and a half old, two year old, whatever. They're young. Those make for exciting, fun hunts, but you're really not ever seeing those big mature deer versus like, okay, well, we, we put a plan in place. We eliminated a lot of does on the property. We really focused on getting our ratio down to that one-to-one -one ratio of buck to does. And now we go out and we might see a deer, you know, we might see a deer a night. We might not see a buck for a week or two, but whenever we do see a buck, he's probably going to be mature. Hmm. So I'm wondering how often that comes into play while these guys are uh, in the year one, two, and three after their properties have been, you know, renovated. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I mean, we, we talked to Andy, uh, you know, last week or two weeks ago on the podcast and he was kind of given the, uh, example of the property out by me. Um, you know, they bought that property and they go in, in the middle of the thick shit and clear out a really, you know, an acre food plot. And he said that very next year on, you know, very next hunting season, they did the work in let's say February that October, he said October 1st, they had, I think he said 20 bucks in that food plot that he literally just put in 
you know, eight months ago. Um, and his daughter, uh, Paisley ended up shooting one on opening night. Uh, I think that's like a perfect example of if, you know, if, if you build it, they will come as, uh, feel the dream says, I think if you improve it, I think they're going to, you're not going to scare them off. I think you're only going to improve your chances. You, you're going to cherry pick some bucks and that's also going to let your, you know, age structure improve as well, because you're going to have more bucks slash bigger bucks to choose from not being so inclined to take the, the younger one. Field of dreams. Is that Kevin Costner? Who is that? Um, yeah, no, yeah, that's Kevin Costner. I think. Who's in the, who's in the, what a guy who is Kevin Costner in the rookie too? No, that's not Kevin. That's a different actor. He's not, he's in uh, bull Durham. I don't know what the fuck. You ever seen Bull Durham? No. Oh my god! (laughs) You call yourself a baseball player and you haven't seen Bull Durham? I don't. Goodness gracious! All right, that's gonna that's gonna be your homework for next episode is to watch Bull Durham, and uh, we could discuss it. It it is a classic. If if you like baseball and uh, or you just like Kevin Costner, you like good movies, check out Bull Durham. It is a classic. It's that good old time movie. Oh, can't beat it. Yeah. Doesn't sound very good to me. Bull Durham doesn't sound like a baseball movie. You're unbelievable. You're unbelievable. <laughs> Anything else we want to talk about? I don't know. I think that we got a lot of good stuff covered. I mean, I enjoyed I enjoyed uh kind of kind of what we talked about. I'm sure. I mean, we can elaborate on a lot of stuff, but um we're just kind of kind of going with the flow this time of year. Hunting season's not in right now. So, I mean, we don't have a lot to, to talk about what's going on in our personal worlds in the whitetail world um, as far as hunting goes. But, uh, I mean, I guess we do have. Uh, you just made a uh, you just made an investment into your hunting uh, arsenal for this season. You want to talk about that a little bit, money bags? Oh, yeah, fuck. Uh, I did purchase... <laughs> I purchased a camera. Um, I've never done filming in my life. I've, I've done a lot of filming for my cell phone um, while I'm out there. And I love taking videos of, you know, deer. Um, I mean, even, you know, the buck that I shot last year, Trident, which I called him. You know, I got some really cool footage of him um, beforehand on my cell phone. Obviously, when the fucking opportunity presents itself, I put the cell phone down and quit recording. Uh, so, I know in the outdoor industry, uh, film is like getting good footage is everything. Um, because if you can't show people, you know, talking about it only does so much. Being able to like sh- actually show them what you're doing is a whole nother level. So I did, I did purchase a camcorder, uh, that I will be using this season. Um, and that's a whole nother level of, uh, I'm going to, I'm sure I'm going to f- talk about failure. They say how hard it is to self film. Um, but I'm going to give it my absolute best. And my goal this year is to at least get a doe on camera. I mean, if a big old buck walks in front of me and I don't have the camera set up, am I going to let him walk because I don't have the right footage? Probably not. I'm not to that point yet. But my goal this year, shoot a doe on film. Um, hopefully it's good film. And, you know, put together like a little video, start working with the, you know, software program, editing it. and you know, putting out actual footage for people to see and hopefully enjoy. 
Right. And I mean, ultimately, the whole reason we're doing this is, you know, for you guys, the listeners out there, because, you know, we, we do have our, I mean, we, we have our Instagram account. We have our YouTube account at the Deer Camp Podcast, if you're listening. But in the past, most all of our videos have been recorded, you know, from cell phones or actually, I mean, mainly cell phones. We have a few other, you know, more, I would say, user-friendly slash professional cameras. Um, you know, we do have some of that on our on our social media, but not a ton. So that is going to be our, our big uh our big bite to take out of for this season is really kind of digging in there to provide a little bit of a higher quality experience for the viewer, because that's ultimately, you know, what we want. I mean, we, we love to, we love to do this. Um, and, you know, we want to share that with, with all of our listeners and, and people that are coming along on this journey with us. So the, the fact that you got a camera and uh, you were nice enough to go in with my uh, groomsmen for my wedding and actually purchased a camera for me as a wedding present, you know, thank you. I've told you that before, but you know, that this really helped us jumpstart, uh, doing this thing that we've always talked about. And, um, by having these cameras, you know, it's kind of just like looking at an, an empty book, you know, it's like, we're going to write our, write our destiny in them. And, uh, it's time to, to buckle down and really get out there and, and film some stuff and figure out how we can bring you guys, you know, along for a better deer camp experience. Yeah, I'm sure it's going to – our footage is probably not going to be very good. I mean, maybe – I don't know. Maybe it's just going to be practice, you know, maybe go out and practice at the beginning of the season, you know, shooting does, getting them on footage. But I'm sure it's not going to be very good at first, and I, I can almost guarantee the whole actual video we put out, like the edited version, is not going to be very good. But then again, you know, we're going to fail. We're going to realize what we can do better. And knowing me and you, we're going to figure it out, just like we did the whole hunting thing. And hopefully before too long, we're making some, you know, badass videos out there that people enjoy watching. Um, Cause I know we're going to enjoy making them. Absolutely. Yep. Um, I'm with you, man. We're, uh, we're, we're going to figure this out just like we, we've found success in hunting. We're going to find success to this, this podcast thing. Uh, we just, we're going to get, you know, we're going to get our, uh, we're gonna get our podcast, you know, in front of the right guys, the guys that want to be at the table with us at deer camp. They want to shoot the shit and tell stories and, and not, not care about where they're at in their, their hunting career or people that just want to sit down and drink a beer with us. You know, it don't, it don't matter, but we're, you know, we're, we typically find six, we're going to find some sort of some level of success in what we do. Um, it's always been that way. We're relentless. Uh, you know, we're our, we're our own worst critics. So, you know, we're going to say we're not very good. We're not going to figure this out. Um, but I think that having that bar set so high, something to go after and really, you know, being, being happy, but never satisfied is really, uh, really where we're at. And I, that's why I know that this podcast and our f future fans and the select few guys that are listening to us now, you know, we really appreciate it. And, um, we want you to stick with us and, and grow with us and, and reach out to us if there's anything that we're saying wrong or any things you want to hear in the future. Cause you know, we're doing this for you guys ultimately. And we, we want to keep you guys along with us. If you guys think we fucking suck, honestly, let us know. I would appreciate that. Let us know why we suck and we'll work on it. Yeah. But, and, and if you just think that Peyton sucks, just let us know that too. And, and that, we'll find somebody else. And uh, <laughs> I may tell you to fuck off, but I appreciate the honesty. 
Anyways, man, yep. Febu- February 23rd, 221 days this season. Let the countdown, uh, the countdown has already begun, but let it continue to click before you know it. It's going to be October 1st and we're going to be out there chasing some big boys. So uh, episode number four is in the books. Appreciate everyone listening. Well, guys, thanks for tuning in to the Deer Camp Podcast. We hope you enjoyed your time here and maybe even learned a thing or two. Remember, shoot straight and stay safe out there, friends. We'll see you back next time.